Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Moneybags Sachs. <laughs> Ethan, how does it feel to have max cashed the Arena Open this past weekend? It feels great. It feels just like you would think. Feel about uh, $2,000 richer. <laughs> that sounds good. And also, $2,000 prouder, man. Like, that's yeah. got to be like an awesome accomplishment. You're in the middle of raising a small human being, probably <laughs> strapped to your chest some of the time, and just uh-huh. crushing it in the arena open. Yeah. I mean, he's my good luck charm. Last weekend, I think, you know, was probably my best magic weekend all, uh, all told, just getting the the three zero against Team Resources and closing the gap on Friday, and then getting the two K on Sunday. And I'm I'm happy to report. I mean, I sort of alluded to this deck that I got uh, in draft one right before we recorded this like weird Jeskai pile, basically like mostly blue. I think like four or five red cards, and then two white cards. One of them being the Eternal Wanderer. Uh, so a little bit of a, a messy deck there, but. Uh, but it got there. I got the clean 4-0 in draft one. Well, and the mana base was way better than you're making it sound, right? You sure. Triple Terramorphic Expanse. You had yes. good fixing. Yeah, three Terramorphic Expanse and a Seachrome Coast for my my aggressive white splash. And then had uh, a Glistener Seer and two Axiom Engravers and triple Experimental Augury. So a lot of like card selection, card draw, velocity to be able to find the things that I need and, and specifically be able to find the Eternal Wanderer most games. Yeah, and draft two, what was going on there? Draft two was a lot more straightforward. I first picked a Contagious Vorak, and then out of that pack, Porcelain Zealot Wield, and that was one of the cards I was considering to be in second place behind Vorak. And white was absurdly open. I got past pack two, pick two, White Sun's Twilight, better Ooh. lucky than good. Um, <laughs> and the the real question was just whether or not to splash because I had some some good black cards. I had a couple black removal spells. I had a vivisection evangelist. And I had the fixing-ish to be able to get it done. Had a mere convert, had a terramorphic expanse. So could have done it, but just didn't need to. Um, and shout out to you for helping me with just some final tweaks. Like wasn't sure if I was supposed to play Incubus sack. I had a prosthetic injector that I was sort of married to playing that you talked me off the ledge about lost to a very strong red green deck. And I think round two or three, I don't remember, I think it was round two that ramped out in game one, they were on the play ramped out a turn three cough. Um, that was uh, really tough to beat and then just just folded to them later on. And it was so funny. So last week we talked about gameplay. This was like one of the things we were talking about was hazardous blast. And in my first draft, I had a situation where I had Blue Sun's Twilight in my hand um, in my Jeskai deck. I had gotten it back with the Meldweb Curator. And I was waiting. I was like, just fine. And I was I was waiting because I was like, next turn, I'm going to play this for max value and steal their thing and copy it. Okay. Pass the turn. And then I went, oh, no. They have a 3-3, three, three, a 3-3, three, three, and a 2-2. Two, two, and I'm at 8. Oh, no. <laughs> 
And then they cast Hazardous Blast. Oh, no. And I was like, how? Like, if I had just thought about this, like, a second longer, I would have realized being greedy was a bad idea. And I should just, like, suck it up, pay blue, blue, steal their 3-3 golem token from their incubation sack. But I didn't. And then I got got by one of the very things we talked about in the episode. Luckily, didn't come back to to punish me in that whole match, but definitely lost me that game. Streamer whitelist, never punished. <laughs> yeah. So happy to report I got the, the 2K with that really sweet, sweet white green toxic deck. Um, and I honestly, White Sun's Twilight, like, you know, it was very good for me, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see it that often. Like it wasn't the thing that often. It was just like a very clean aggressive beat down green white deck triple vorak viral spawning like just lots of good stuff yeah your card quality was through the roof how about strixhaven you've been doing any of that this week i've done four drafts of strixhaven i'm not one of the people who is oh i seven oh seven one trophy trophy on my way to my 12th trophy <laughs> i've been is that just, happening i have missed all that conversation I've, <laughs> I've been getting savaged like i don't think i'm drafting bad decks i'm just like I don't know. I don't know what's happening, really. I'm, I'm sort of out of it, I guess. I'm, I'm out of touch with the format. But I've gone like 1-3-0-3 and then had a really sweet uh, Demir deck, finally, which is like the deck I was trying to chase, was the Demir Spells deck, and went 3-0 into 3-3 with that deck. And then just had a really, like, I had another draft where I felt really bad, like, just the whole time, like, I don't know what, like, I'm, the thing I'm drafting isn't open, but I don't know when I was supposed to jump ship to something else. And I was like, oh, yeah. I hate this format. This is this like this set is terrible. Like I told you this on stream. I said I think Phyrexia All Will Be One is better than Strixhaven. And I don't think that's a particularly hot take, but the effusive love I am seeing for Strixhaven on Twitter is wild to me. Yeah, I like Strixhaven. I remember liking Strixhaven and Learn Lesson. Learn Lesson is excellent. I agree with that. I have also been having a rough time coming back to it. I only did a couple drafts last night on stream and I went like one, three, three, three or something. And I was just kind of bored yes. <laughs> afterwards, honestly, like compared to one. The games were so slow. And I knew who was going to win, like me or the opponent, about seven or eight turns before it happened. And I yes. still had to sit there and play it out. Yeah. It felt miserable after how fast-paced and action-packed like the first six turns of one are, you know? I will say it feels nice to like be able to put cards that cost seven mana in your deck again <laughs> and not feel like it's an absolute liability. Yeah, that or like to not have a two drop and to be able to keep your hand like all of that stuff was cool. It just was a very different experience from one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think I shall return. I'll see if I'll finish out the terrible. I think it's black white deck that I have, but it's just like, oh, dear, it's like, oops, all removal and like not much learn lesson. I'm like, I'm I can kill a lot of stuff, but I don't know how I win any games. Um yeah, so looking forward to uh, to maybe a few more one drafts before people are maybe surprised. How are they doing the 50 takes episode already? Don't we have like a month and a half left of the set? Well, if you're playing on Arena, not really. We've got Shadows Over Innistrad Remastered coming very soon, which I think you and I are both nostalgically excited for. Like, oh, it really like the remastered sets that they've done so far. Um, and Cat Remastered, maybe not so much, but certainly Kaladesh Remastered was a, a huge favorite of ours. I'm um, looking forward to this. I think Innistrad holds a special place in my heart, one of the first sets when I came back to drafting. And 
that's going to be the next arena open is Shadows over Innistrad Limited. So hopefully we can uh, run back some dollar dollar bills there. So we got to cover that for a few weeks on the podcast. And then March of the Machines is right around the corner. So it is time to send off Phyrexia All Will Be One in Lords of Limited fashion. So here we have a way to summarize the format for folks drafting in real time. And I I keep hearing it. And you love to hear it because it was such a happy accident for us that the 50 takes episodes are such good fuel for getting back into a format. Strixhaven comes back. Someone's like, man, I forget how to draft the set. I go, you got 50 minutes on your hands? Check out this episode. Play it at 2x speed. 25 minutes. You're done. Easy. Maybe you and I should have gone back and listened to the 50 takes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I usually do go back and read the show notes, and I didn't for Strixhaven. I was like, this was soon enough, but maybe, maybe I just forgot. Maybe Baryon Books isn't uh, the hotness I remember it being. I don't know. <laughs> um, so we are going to be sending it off with 50 takes today, a way to summarize the format. Before we get into that, a few housekeeping things. First things first, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. It's where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. You know, we often shout out the great community that we have, and we do have a great community over at our Discord, which is what everybody who gives back to the Patreon gets access to. Gotta shout out our mods and our IT support in particular. So a little bit of behind the scenes here for our Discord. So we have sections where we talk about each format in particular and tons of channels for each format, you know, poster best of one or best of three trophies, big picture discussions, card evaluations, draft log reviews, whatever, you name it, what you want to discuss about a particular format, we have a channel dedicated to that. Then once the set goes away, we archive that channel. Then when a set comes back, like Strixhaven for a week, we bring it back. Our mods are doing all of that. Shout out to them. They're incredible. Then we reached, as the Discord has been around now for five plus years, we reached a maximum of channels in the Discord. So we had to do a little bit of uh, of rejiggering there. And one of the things that I did was I went ahead and tried to apply for a Discord partner, which I assume will give us more channels. That application caused a little bit of panic in the Discord, had our mods and IT have to do a little bit of work to make things work. It all smoothed out. And honestly, all I had to do was be like, ah, I caused a problem, fix it. And they did. So huge shout out to them. Just a fantastic community there. What else we got over at the Patreon page? Well, we got access to our show notes in advance of the episode. People love to read through the 50 takes. That's a much easier way to get access to uh, that sweet Strixhaven tech in your veins for the week that it comes back. You get access to the show a day early if you want, and you can even get access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. So if any of all of that is of interest to you, or if you just want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. And we do want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, we're welcoming James, Thomas, Chris, and Lionel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Show is also brought to you by TCG Player, tcgplayer.com. Best thing to go for anything and everything you need Magic the Gathering related on the internet. We want to shout out the TCG Player subscription for $6.99 a month, which gives you free shipping and tracking on all your orders. So if you're purchasing anything from TCG Player, it's a no-brainer to be on their subscription service. You also get extra bonus bucks, which is store credit on your purchases. And you also get access to CFB Pro articles, which you, me, Alex are pumping out every week, along with a host of other CFB pros. And I'm sure there will be some content coming out about Shadows over Innistrad Remastered. And it's not too late to pick up some Phyrexia All Will Be One sealed product to draft with your friends down the road. And we're almost around the corner, you said, for mom. I mean, pre-orders, I assume, are going to be happening shortly. So keep your eyes on the horizon for that. And no matter what you're doing over at TCG Player, please make sure you use our affiliate link for whatever you're doing over there, whether you're signing up for a TCG Player subscription or whether you're making some sealed product purchases. You can get there by going to lordsoflimited.com slash TCG Player. That'll redirect you to our affiliate link. And then anything you do while you're using our affiliate link will help out the show. Boom. All right, we'll take a quick ad break and we'll be back with 50 takes. 
Our next partner is Athletic Greens. The new year is in full swing and many of our resolutions may have already gone by the wayside. If you're looking to stay on track with any health-related goals, AG1 by Athletic Greens is just for you. Whether you're looking for increased energy, immune system support, or better gut health, AG1 has you covered. We all have a lot on our plate, whether it's working a full-time job while creating content or going full daddy daycare while keeping up with the latest metagame shift. One scoop of AG1 powder and water lets me start the day by checking a ton of boxes. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. It doesn't take a PT-level magic player to recognize that that's a lot of value. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com LOL. That's athleticgreens.com slash LOL. Check it out. All right, Ben, you ready to get 50 minutes on the clock? Let's do it. All right, here we go. I'm going to let you have the first point here, sir. I kind of want you to say it. I'm not going to lie. Okay. Number one, got to give the people what they want first. The Golden Egg Award winner goes to Dune Mover. And I, I, you know what? I'm not even sad to say it. I'm happy to say it. I'm happy to be on Team Dune Mover. I'm sorry it took me so long to get on board. It was quite a journey, quite a it journey. It really was. Yeah, it slowly was eroding each and every week my my pushback against this card. One of the things that I didn't realize, I was watching uh, Darkest Mage stream when, when he qualified for the PT uh, via the um, Mythic Championship Qualifier, whatever thing that happened two weeks ago. And Mere Convert was in his sideboard. And someone was like, why is Mirror Convert in your sideboard? He was like, because the card is bad. You know how how he does. (laughs) Right, right, right. I was like, I don't think that's true. But the more I thought about it, I realized that Dune Mover is just better than Mirror Convert. And it took me way too long to figure that out. So Mirror Convert being the uncommon, uh, the the two mana, two, one artifact, it has toxic one, much like Dune Mover. But it taps for a mana of any color if you pay two life, uh, whereas Dune Mover can top that basic land. And the problem with Mirror Convert is if you want it to do the thing it does, you can't trade with it on turn two and you can't attack with it on turn three. And so while there is like a slight higher ceiling of, yeah, you can ramp into your four drop or whatever, two life against some decks is a big cost. But also just the fact that you can't do that, you're sort of restricted of, I don't really want to engage this in combat. Whereas then Dune Mover, you're like, this already did the thing. Now I can attack or block with it as I see fit. Um, that's a big bonus for the card, but also it just, sure, there are some decks that don't care about it, but a lot of the time it really gets the job done. And I finally pack one, picked one the other day, and uh, I, I don't regret it. Yeah, I actually faced that Dune Mover Mirror Convert pick about three or four weeks ago. Whenever I started championing Dune Mover, that was when I had my epiphany. I was like, oh, this is better than Mirror Convert. And I was still holding on to the Barb Batterfist life and just kind of like jabbing you about Dune Mover and then just also has kept going up and up and up for me. And I, I think I'm picking Dune Mover over Barb Batterfist. Pack one, pick one. I think I am too. I mean, one of the things like Barb Batterfist is is very good still, I think. Um, and we'll talk about the four Mirrodin cards a little later. One of the reasons that Barb Batterfist, I think, stopped being such a, a champion for me in terms of a golden egg was that I think Axiom Engraver is just the better two drop a lot of the time. Yes, I think that's true. And and that felt tough to sort of be like, well, how, how why am I giving it to this one red two drop over this other one when I think the other one is even just better? Yeah, I hear that. Number two. The defining characteristic of one was the strict rules of engagement you had to follow to be competitive. You had to have a low curve 
You really had to be packing cheap interaction, preferably hex gold slashes if you were red. And you really have to impact the board by turn two if you're on the draw. On the play, you can get away with turn three. But if you're on the draw and your first play is on turn three, it better be something that catches you up well. Yeah, like Annex Entry is, is one of the only cards that comes to mind. Um, but even that just kind of gets wrecked by the Hex Gold Slash if your opponent's in red. Yeah, this is so true. And I feel like we latched onto this really early. And I, I do think, as, as I think we'll point out a little later, I think this is a feature, not a bug. I, I don't know if I have a spot to talk about this, but this is one of the formats that I think has taught me more about Magic in our podcasting career than any other. Like I have learned more about how to draft, how to build, how to play aggressive decks than I think ever before. And that's something I can really carry to future formats. I don't think future formats as a whole will be as aggressively slanted and as like, you know, low curve slanted, have these sort of rules of engagement slanted as the set. But certainly you'll draft decks like that and you'll need to know how to pilot them. And I think this format teaches you how to do that. Yeah, and why the cards are good in aggro too. I also think it shows you. Yes. Number three, at times the format mechanics were overshadowed by the raw efficiency of the commons. So think Trawler Drake as, oh, it's got oil counters. It's doing the non-creature thing. It interacts with proliferate. Look at all that sort of intersectionality versus raw stats chimney rabble (laughs) like that you can really hold up to like a mirror of okay how many of these cards are sort of fussy or finicky versus how many of these cards are just do the thing all the time you know yeah it's trawler drake batteries not included chimney rabble batteries fully charged ready to go (laughs) oh so good so true moving on number four the official lords of limited phyrexia all will be one color rankings in first place red second place white in third, green, fourth, a strong fourth, blue, and bringing up the rear, black. Yeah, controversial here. I think a lot of people will put blue in fifth place. And even if you have blue in fifth place and you disagree with us, that's fine. But blue is in fifth place, but it is by no means bad. It is misunderstood, <laughs> but it is not bad. And this is a Naya format, but I think it's also interesting. There was a lot of scuttle about how broken white looked at the beginning of the format. But this was then before we sort of realized how flexible red was and how sort of then once you get into white, green, and blue, how fussy those cards are or or how you really have to know what the secret gold cards are in those colors. For sure. Red's the best because it is the most powerful and the most flexible. Number five. One was a Naya format, as evidenced by our color rankings, but the color imbalance was not that bad overall. Like... I don't know. Is I'm not even sure now if there, I was for so long saying that blue green was a color pair I never wanted to draft. I don't even feel that way now. I feel like I finally saw the light in the arena open about Gataxian Raptor and blue based control decks. And I have since drafted a really good blue green deck. I think I get blue green and I think I get all 10 color pairs and I'm happy. I'm I would much rather be in the open color pair for my seat than anything else in the set. I think that is definitely true. Yes. And I think that was from the get go. We saw the archetypes now streamline that were. And I think I agree that it's taken longer for the format to go on for me to come around to things like blue green or green black or whatever. And I'm certainly less comfortable drafting those than sure. I in the other decks because I just have way less reps with it. But I do think it's all viable. And certainly once you get into best of three and like, you know, drafts like the arena open where, you know, the competition level's high and the good cards are getting snapped up a little earlier. 
you're definitely less incentivized to do that sort of stuff in league play in best of one, but certainly high stakes drafts, like sign me up for the open color pair. Yeah, for sure. Like I don't, I don't think you should be like, well, I just know that red green is the best. So I'm going to, you know, jam my way into that. Like, no, it's, I mean, it's the best for a few reasons which we'll talk about soon, but I would much prefer to just figure out what no one else is in and, and do that. Speaking of number six, one had the most distinct archetypes of any format since we've started the podcast. And this was a feature, not a bug. And initially early on, you, I think, viewed this as a bug, at least the first Mm -hmm. week, and then rapidly came around to, oh, no, like, you can totally draft the hard way in this format. Yeah, well, because it, I felt like you were you had to lock in early, and that just wasn't true. Like it, it was almost the opposite. Like I just think I was locking in. I probably was getting trapped by some some gold cards or secret gold cards. Just you know, drafting a signpost on common, and then a couple monocolored cards that supported that specifically, and feeling like I didn't have any wiggle room. And I was probably right, but I also don't think that's the correct way to draft the set. Um, so I, I totally agree. I think this was a feature, not a bug and distinct archetypes in the sense of, so sometimes we'll see, oh, you know, blue white can do maybe one of two things or whatever. No, it's artifacts in this format or red white could do a few things like, no, it's a, a beat down deck. Like maybe you have some more formatted and payoffs or equipment payoffs in one version than another, but you know, those decks largely operate the same way and almost everything I would say, save for, I don't know, maybe some blue green or blue black, maybe some blue decks. They're all aggressive decks. They're all assertive in some way or another. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things too, with regard to the archetypes is we were initially worried going in that, you know, like blue white was going to be that awkward thing that didn't quite come Mm. together or red white was going to be that awkward thing that didn't quite come together because they didn't look like they had any bleed. And it looked like all of the toxic corrupted oil decks we're going to have a lot of bleed, but they actually juiced up blue, white artifacts and white, red for Mirrodin so much that those were some of the stronger archetypes in the format when they came together. And usually those those things that aren't synergistic with other colors or other color pairs in the format fall off a little bit or don't work quite as well. And they were actually great in this format. Yeah, agreed. Number seven, it was very important to draft an archetype as opposed to drafting a color to maximize your success in the format. There were lots of secret gold cards. What do we mean by secret gold cards, Ben? Just a card that is white. Like, so for example, Flensing Raptor is not going to be good in a blue-white deck. It's essentially a white-black card or a white-green toxic card, and you're probably never playing it in blue-white or red-white. Correct. So a monocolored card that doesn't actually go in all four of that colors two color pairs and i think this was one of the most fun things about the format was to really recognize oh here's like the gradation of quality you could have a card that went from super awesome in a deck to unplayable in another archetype and that was that was hard for like a lot of people to wrap their heads around right we were always championing hashtag delay the decision and sometimes that's true in this format but you want to recognize when you're not actually delaying the decision there were lots of like ways to trap yourself and be like oh i'm taking white card white card white card it's like well you've actually taken a white blue card a white red card and a white green card here right well and i think Part of the reason red was good was because you could just draft it as a color. And I think Correct. certainly those color rankings probably are in that order. Maybe green even more than white. Yes. It's draftable as a color. And then the closer you get to black, the more you're getting yourself in trouble by drafting black as a color because you're essentially drafting toxic gold cards that are only going to be good in a toxic deck. Mm-hmm. 
Number eight, having access to cheap removal was critical to your ability to change the tempo of the game early on, which was another unique thing about this format, right? Normally, the limited adage is hold your removal for your opponent's bombs, you know, save it until you absolutely have to fire it off. And this format really, I think, encouraged you and rewarded you for firing off your removal early and often to help you change the flow or the pace of the game. Well, because things were so snowbally. I mean, we think about and and you know, depending your mileage may vary on how good the strategy was, but you know, your opponent gets you corrupted, that's gonna turn on a lot of their payoffs if they have those cards, you know. Their incisor glider giving their whole team an anthem when they attack is huge. Being able to stop that is is also very huge. So having that cheap interaction, and cheap interaction doesn't just mean hex gold slash, it also really shown a light on whisper of the dross or crawling chorus as like yeah it's an, a good assertive card but also a really good defensive card because it holds off anything with one toughness i think that was one of the real reasons that like one toughness creatures were such liabilities in the set was crawling chorus specifically but then also if you're on the back foot you can't block those mites at all yes they were just embarrassed by both crawling chorus and mites Number nine, Hexgold Slash is significantly better than Volt Charge. Like Volt Charge, I I don't know how. I mean, I had my eye on Contagious Vorak, but I definitely thought Volt Charge, if it wasn't the best, would be the second best common overall. And it's far from it. I don't even know where it ranks in my top red commons. It's it's not number two, I don't think. No, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. almost like interchangeable removal, which is wild to say. I mean, it's slightly better than that, but it's it's closer to interchangeable removal than it is to hex gold slash. Well, and, and I think also has variability, right? If you're like, I think, I mean, not that it's better, but not that it, this makes it good or best or whatever, but it, it is better when you care about proliferate. Like, if you're like red blue artifacts, Volt Charge is really not great because you're like never proliferating anything. Yes. Well, and I think it took us longer than I would care to admit to yes. really realize how much better Hex Gold Slash is than Volt Charge. Like it was yes. probably two weeks in before we were like, yes, definitely mm-hmm. Hex Gold Slash. But it's important to note why. And a lot of it is due to the speed of the format and the ability to double spell with Hex Gold Slash, just how compressed the games are. And the fact that there's a lot less archetype bleed than in a normal format or than we would have anticipated proliferate was just less valuable in general, unless your deck was doing a very specific thing. Not every deck or close to every deck cared about proliferating. Correct. Number 10, red, green oil and beatdown was the default best deck in the format. There's a lot of reasons for this. For for me, the, the main one being how good both of those colors are at common or how often this deck can exist at common, you know, it's just like rock solid stats, like good cheap interaction in Hex Gold Slash and Ruthless Predation. Get a little bit of oil synergy if you want. Um, good cheap creatures like Rustvine Cultivator and Axiom Engraver. And then when you get to the the four and the five drop slot, you just have bangers, Chimney Rabble, Lattice Blade <laughs> Mantis, Furnace Strider, Oil Gorger Troll. If you're doing the oil thing, like it's, Chimney Rabble into Furnace Strider is just a wild thing to face on the draw. It's a beating. It's called, a, it, called it during the uh, SCG con. That's the first right. time my opponent played Furnace Strider against me, I was like, oh, God. Like, yeah. It was just awesome. Yeah, it's so big. Yeah, those, uh, those decks are great. And then if you have anything at higher rarity, obviously, it just gets better from there. All right, one more ad break, and then we'll be back with the rest of the list. 
So, Ethan, have you thought about how you're going to spend your massive winnings from the Arena Open? Well, thanks to Mint Mobile, I won't need to spend it on an overpriced phone plan. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. If Ben can't be trusted to read all the way to the bottom of filigree silex, there's no way he's going to make it through the terms and fees of a phone plan. (laughs) That's why Mint Mobile makes everything cheap and easy. By going online only and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash LOL. That's mintmobile.com slash LOL. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash LOL. And now, back to the show. Number 11, we thought Toxic and Corrupted would be the best thing to do in the format, and it was far from it. Yeah, just looking at the spoiler, it looked like White Toxic was incredible. That was all of the scuttle in the Lords of Lumina Discord was that Crawling Chorus was going to be outstanding, and it was, but that, you know, the the single white trick that gave something plus one plus one, and then another plus one plus oh in first strike if your opponent was corrupted, like just a, a mono white low to the ground Toxic Corrupted deck, and that was a thing, but I don't even know that it was the best thing to do in the format. And just how finicky the relationship between toxic and corrupted was and how disruptable it was, I think, was a huge knock against it, right? You invested all this stuff to corrupt your opponent, and then maybe your opponent can kill your incisor glider with removal, or maybe they can just keep you off of corrupting them with cheap removal. It was harder to do than you would have assumed, and it really constricted your path through a draft, I think, once you were locking in on that route. Yeah, I mean, if it was open, you got great decks. Like those were some of the best decks I can remember is just like nutso, black, white, toxic decks. But if it was contested, if you got into it for the wrong reasons, whatever, you were going to have a bad time. Took me way too long to realize that Pestilent Siphoner was nothing to write home about. Yeah, just didn't have enough stats. Didn't have enough stats. I mean, so bad at blocking. And I saw what did I I saw a take I think it was from Sam Black on Twitter where he was like in some formats you can't block right because like just how the, the rules of engagement whatever in this format you have to block right it's not that blocking is bad in this format it's not you almost have to be able to block and when your cards are like it's one of the reasons we we keep shouting out Pestilence Siphoner and Trawler Drake is these just like understated cards and sure the ceiling on them can be high. But it's so bad for you if you are on the back foot, on the draw, whatever. Yes. Number 12, Four Mirrodin was an excellent way to make an equipment theme work very well in red-white. Maybe a little too well. Four Mirrodin was kind of busted. So the mechanic where you get the two twos and your equipment is just essentially already equipped to your creature. Rectangle theory, baby. I mean, it's alive and well. (laughs) It is alive and well. Two rectangles for the price of one. I do think it was maybe slightly pushed, but honestly, a pretty cool mechanic because it didn't feel like a full two for one. I think that the common for Meriden equipment was all designed pretty darn well in terms of you get a three mana two, three, a four mana four, two, five mana four, three with vigilance. The re-equip costs were a little expensive, but you get a war whip, you get the two, three menace that makes your equip costs cheaper. Well, now suddenly you're 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 cooking a little bit. I, I think this was a. I, I would like to see more stuff like this in the future. I think living weapon and variants on it are good for this kind of archetype. 
Yeah, this was awesome. Number 13, cards that entered the battlefield with oil were much better than cards that needed something to happen to get oil. And I'll also say that I think cheaper cards with oil were largely better than more expensive ones, maybe with the exception of Furnace Rider. But that is especially in terms of if you have any oil payoffs, if you have Urbrask Anointer or you have Oil Gorger Troll or even the Cinder Slash Ravager, you know, like you want to be able to play your Axiom Engravers early, your Rustfind Cultivators early, get those down with oil and then reap the benefits later on. Yes. And some of that too was due to how fast the format was, right? You didn't mm-hmm. always necessarily have time to set up your stuff to get the oil counters on cards that needed the oil counters put on them. And if you could get that ball rolling, it was a good ball to get rolling. It just was a constricting factor that you didn't always have time for. Well, and again, that comes back to if it's a format where you have to block, you don't want to be put in a position where you're like, "Eh, I don't want to trade off this creature because I have this Urbrask anointer and I really want to be able to deal two with it. That's this tension that you, you don't want to have to face when you're in game. Yes. Number 14, one is primarily a two-color format, but you can splash if you have a reason to and you have the good fixing. This also really, I think, opened up a lot more in the later weeks of the format. Like once once black stopped being overdrafted as it was in the first few weeks, black opened up. And as a result, I think a lot of things opened up and I felt much less wary of light splashing, even some heavy splashing in the arena open. But I, I really thought you you could do that. And, and perhaps even the uh, the love of the golden egg helped me see the light in terms of being able to splash. Yeah, Dune Mover is a huge piece in the, in the fixing splashing puzzle. But I also think you just have to be hyper aware of the rules too. I mean, splashing is fine as long as you're following the rules while you're splashing. Right. And also just recognizing like what cards are worth splashing, like Skrelv's Hive is so good in a white deck. It's a terrible card to splash. (laughs) Don't splash a two-mana enchantment that's slow and doesn't catch you up when you're behind. Don't splash Urabrask's Forge. Like That card's powerful because it comes down on turn three, not because it comes down on turn seven, you know? like You have to be not only thinking about the rules, but also thinking about why cards are good and will they be good as splashes. Mm-hmm. Number 15, the spheres were largely underwhelming as lands that turned into card advantage later in the game. We, we, we're just, we just got to stop thinking that these kinds of effects are good anymore. Never. Deserts for life. Why couldn't Dune Mover find spheres? That's what I want to know. Ooh, that'd have been nice. Why wasn't Dune Mover a mirror and why couldn't it find spheres? That's my question to r and I mean, it's uh, already yeah. broken. That might just put it over the top. That's fine. That's fine with me. Then I don't have to spend <laughs> two weeks not seeing the light. I could have been drafting Dune Movers from the, the get. Uh, tap lands are just too punishing in this format specifically. And and as you called it, that games just don't come down to these resource battles where you're like, aha, I am one card ahead, one card deeper in my library. That's just not it. Speaking of that, number 16, you should mulligan much more aggressively than normal in Phyrexia All Will Be One because each individual resource isn't nearly as important as getting off to a good start in the games. This might be this, like if you have someone who has never drafted this set but is a good drafter, like you you know, you think of them as a good magic player, this might be the single best piece of advice to give them about the format just that you need to make sure you have a functional opening hand yeah like i think that because i think that tells you a lot about the set by saying like you need like if you can't impact the board on turn one or two on the draw you have to mulligan your hand i think that tells you a lot about what to expect from the draft format 
Yeah, that would save people a lot of pain and frustration. <laughs> Number 17, Eye of Malkator is still underrated to this day. And we were on this from early access. Yeah, I love this card. It's my most drafted common. I'm happy to report it passed up Barb Batterfist. <laughs> Me too. I have Malkator for life, baby. And I think one of the things that's underappreciated about it is how good it is at being aggressive. Like, yes, mm-hmm. you can't block with it. But even if you start out slightly on the back foot, I think that's what I like about it so much. It's so aggressive that you can turn the tempo around on your opponent because it's such a good damage dealer. Well, my favorite thing about it is it gives you a plan in draft at common when your draft is going poorly. Like when you don't have a clear direction and you don't have anything clearly powerful to hang on to and you see an Eye of Malkator pick five, pick six, I love going, okay, I can do that. If no one else wants to do that, I can do that. And I know I'll be able to do it because it's a common. Yeah, it's a good feeling. Number 18, Furnace Strider is a beating. We said it earlier and we'll say it again. This card is a house. Five mana, four or five haste, just gigantic in the format. And maybe you need to block with it. Great. Your next two creatures are going to have haste or you can proliferate it. Just the threat of what this is going to do the following turn also after it cracks in or changes the tempo of the game is really strong. Right. That's 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 the thing you can't really see from it is how much you go and how much it not only impacts the board the turn it comes into play but how much it impacts potential future turns so you're so incentivized to get it off the battlefield because otherwise you're signing up to never attack again while it's on the battlefield or you're signing up to try and race a creature that guarantees one more at least one more creature from your opponent will have haste like why like if it had one counter it would not be nearly as busted yes (laughs) but that's not the world we live in it is not Number 19, one heavily rewarded you for finding the open archetype for your seat because the commons were so synergistic and powerful. Like when you found the right home for those commons, you were off to the races, baby. Number 20, there were some egregious rares looking at you, the Eternal Wanderer, but the speed and power of the commons largely helped keep them in check. I did not feel badly about the rares in this format. And I am the poster child, regardless of my new Zen, like chi that I've found with magic. I don't like rares being really good. And I, there are some insane rares in this format. And I never really felt like I couldn't compete with them because if you're drafting aggressive decks and you're drafting the good commons and the good interaction, you can make sure you're on the front foot more often than not and have a chance against some of these gross rares. Yeah. I said this, I don't know, week two or something like games were won by rares. But trophies were won off the back of commons. And we'll talk about this a little later. I don't know. I think the uncommons in this format are kind of clunkers. It's a a little weird, but we'll we'll get to that later. All right, number 21, the official Lords of Limited gold uncommon power rankings. In first place, Bladehold Warwhip. Second, Cinder Slash Ravager. Third, Cephalopod Sentry. Four, Voidwing Hybrid. Five, Slaughter Singer. And I think those are a clear top five. Yeah. And then there starts to be a little bit of a gap. In sixth, Charforger. Seventh, Necrogen Rot Priest. Eighth, Vivisection Evangelist. Ninth, Tainted Observer. And bringing up the rear, poor Serum Core Chimera. Value lovers despair. Yeah. And I think aside from Serum Core Chimera, I was happy to play all of these. 
Yeah, I completely agree. These these uncommons are quite good. Yes. And, and, and very archetypal and important to their archetypes. For sure. Number 22, the only color pair whose signpost lies about what it's trying to do is Charred Forger. Red-black really is not a hyper-focused sacrifice deck because you're usually just heavy red, and if you're heavy red, you're just killing your opponent. Well, and you just like, we talk about how important impacting the board is early, how important like trading is. Like, when do you ever want to invest mana and resources in affecting the board and then remove those things from the board for incremental value? Like, literally <laughs> never is that what I want to do in this set. Yeah. Number 23, Annex Century was the mythic uncommon of the format due to its ability to change the tempo of the game. I think this is my... Someone asked me the other day, what, what do you think the best uncommon overall is? I think it's Annex Century. Oh, yeah. Completely for me. I, I think it's not... Eh, it's probably close. That's, it's that's close. There, there are some, some yeah. really good uncommons at the There's top of really that list. Uncommons, but nothing does what this does early in the game where your opponent could be winning and then all of a sudden you're totally stable and maybe you're ahead. Yeah. Well, and one of the great things that it does as well is it has like it's powerful and has synergy with a bunch of stuff because it's toxic, because it's an artifact. You also get to like play with, ooh, this also bumps up my synergistic things in my deck as well. Yes. Number 24, Tamio's Immobilizer is just a better icy manipulator. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like Icy Manipulator costs one to tap and sure it can tap lands, but Tamiyo's Immobilizer is free. And like, it's, I just, I've literally never seen this run out of oil counters. I know I've never run out of oil with my, it's my crazy. opponents never have either. It's wild. And and this is, I mean, we talked about Eye of Malkator being underrated to this day. Tamiyo's Immobilizer goes criminally late in drafts. It wheels sometimes. I think people just are really down on blue. I think it got a lot of hate early and it was hard for it to shake that. Number 25, Getaxian Raptor was the best blue common on rate, but you wouldn't even play it in every blue deck. And, and it's why I think I, I wasn't really sold on this for a long time. I finally saw the light with four of these in my uh, day two arena open deck. Um, this is just a fantastic card in blue based control decks, as we talked about, because you can block with it with impunity against almost every combat trick in the format. But that just sort of also clues you into, hey, if Gataxian Raptor is the best blue common on rate, but you really don't want any copies of it in your blue white decks. How crazy is that? It's wild. And like, imagine saying that about hex gold slash, like you're not playing hex gold slash in every red deck. Right. Come on. Like you're yeah. playing probably the top five red commons in every single red deck. Yeah, for sure. Number 26 proliferate looked like it would be the glue to hold all the format mechanics together, but it was largely just an incidental bonus in most decks. Yeah. We thought it would be this like, glue for archetypal bleed between oh, oil and toxic and oh that couldn't be further from the truth like I, th I guess blue black poison as a burn deck was the only deck that really used proliferate as a key mechanic and some of this was because there was no archetype bleed right right there were clearly defined archetypes and you did your archetypal thing and then you didn't need proliferate to be the glue to hold these disparate mechanics together number 27 axiom engraver is scrap work Mutt. Honestly, <laughs> is this better? This just, <laughs> might be better. That's what I was thinking of like, when I wrote this. <laughs> Scrapwork Mutt, you didn't want to kill. Like, you just, like, never wanted to race, waste a removal spell on it. Axiom Engraver, when that hit the battlefield on turn two, I was like, huh. So that's either blanking my early attacks, or it's going to own me in the late game because my opponent will never flood out. 
Yeah, you better believe I've fired off a turn two planner disruption on my opponent's Axiom Engraver. Oh, I have and I will again. Number 28. We've got a new award here for the 50 takes. You alluded to this earlier in the format. We're going to now be awarding the Imperial Oath Award to the card that is the clunkiest looking that overperforms according to the data and our experiences. And that award goes to Chimney Rabble. Yeah, Chimney Rabble is excellent. I'm a little worried about this as a war, as an award, I've got to say, because yes, Imperial Oath checks this box. Yes, Chimney Rabble checks this box. But I looked through Bro, I looked through DMU, I looked through Streets of New Capenna, tried to be like, what, like if this was an award in the past, what would we have given this to? They're, they don't always exist in the format. So, but we did need to shout out Chimney Rabble as such a like, you know, really came out of the gate hot in the data early, stayed hot throughout the whole format. And I think really alludes to another piece of the format that we will talk about, I think a little later in this list, which is the importance of cards that play both offense and defense well. Yes, non-synergistic overperformer you have here in the show notes. That's a very clean way to describe it. And if there's not a card that fits the bill, we don't have to give out the award. Those cards have to earn it, baby. Okay, sounds good. Number 29, Hazardous Blast is overrated. Boo, I hate that card so much. So so talk to me about your thoughts on this card. I just think it has a lot of love, and I think the love that it's getting leads people to pick it too highly Mm -hmm. and play it too aggressively in decks where it doesn't necessarily belong. And I think it's also just an unfun card to lose to like you feel like something got stolen from you when you lose to it and it's situationally powerful but situationally absurdly powerful or largely irrelevant like there's so many times it's been stuck in my hand and that means there's got to be tons of times it's been stuck in other people's hands it's just a weird card the game has to go a very certain way for hazardous blast to be great I agree with everything you're saying. I also think if I could make one design change in the format, it would be to this card. I would make it modal. I would say either your creatures can't block or it deals a damage to everything. Mm, I like that. Because I think both combined makes it like a little too swingy. Like again, this effect, and I don't even mind it, but like the fact that it does just hose your mandible justiciers, your experimental, whatever, your blue two ones, your mites like it does own a lot of things plus that sort of board stall nature thing we talked about um very quick ben Werney story here i don't even know if i've told you this ben but this okay. is i think my favorite moment of yours from the entire format so uh, lurking in your stream one day you were doing a deck tech and you opened it up and among the cards in the deck were three copies of chimney rabble and two hazardous blasts and you <laughs> said and you said who drafted this you or the data <laughs> <laughs> And I just think about that every day. It's one of my favorite things you've ever said. I mean, call it like I see it. What can I say? (laughs) Number 30, indoctrination attendant is the MacGyver of one. Is this another award? It does it all, man. It might be. I mean, I certainly am not opposed to more awards for the 50 takes. Uh, Yeah, this card really does do it all. I mean, it's another kind of... Plays offense and defense, right? It's it's kind of chimney rabble. Sure, sometimes you just pick up a land, but sometimes you get to like rebuy something that had oil counters on it, like your incubation sack ticked down, and then you pick it up and rebuy that. That's a lot of value. Pick up something that had a planar disruption or a mesmerizing dose on it. Pick up your own planar disruption that you fired off on turn two against, you know, some innocuous two drop that you didn't have a blocker for, and now you do, and now you can go, okay, I'm going to use this removal spell later, like. 
it just did a lot of work. And four toughness was a knight's magic number. Yeah, I think I was not quite picking this highly enough all format. It's tough because it's a four drop. It's a four drop, yeah. I think I should have been picking it a little higher than I was. Number 31, cards that were low on raw stats, aka couldn't block mites or crawling chorus, really struggled to find good homes in the format. So we've talked about Pestilent Siphoner and Trawler Drake. I think you can put Sawblade Scamp and Atmosphere Surgeon on this list. Like these Cards are tough. One toughness is is a tough sell in this format. Number 32, the official Lords of Limited Skull Bomb Power Rankings. In first, Surgical, the blue. In second, Furnace, the red. Dross, the black, bringing in third. Basilica, the white, in fourth. And Maze, in fifth, the green. And this is like, it's like blue, gap, gap, red, (laughs) gap, gap, black, gap, white green for me at least like want as many blue in my blue decks basically as i can get uh furnace is uh, you know sort of does a poor man's free from flesh a little bit in red decks i would like a black skull bomb probably one in all of my black decks and then i think i'm hoping generally to not play the white or the green yes and blue is the only one that was a high pick and even that one you didn't have to you don't need to because yeah because no one else is picking it highly Yep. Number 33, incidental life gain went a long way in the format if you weren't against a toxic opponent. Is this your favorite card in the format? Is Mandible Justiciar your favorite card? You know me. I love a good lifelink. Squire's Devotion. Yeah, exactly. You, you do love some warm fuzzies from your magic cards. I was a big fan of Justiciar. I was a big fan of Oil Gorger Troll. Um, you got the three life no matter what on the troll, and sometimes that was enough to swing the race in your favor, you know? Um, I, I think that... Uh, that the life gain was few and far between, but when you found it, it was really strong. Number 34, Unctus's Retrofitter plus Malkator's Watcher was a build-your-own hasty Sarah Angel on turn three. Yeah, you could have also done this with the, the white uncommon, the one mana, one, two with Vigilance. Get a get a classic white Sarah Angel if that's your jam. But uh, yeah, this was this was a dream. Another, like, I guess it's just blue being underrated, but Unctus's Retrofitter, I think, was another pretty uh pretty underappreciated card in the set yeah and strong reason to draft blue based artifacts for sure number 35 seven drop rares like kaya intangible slayer were just a notch too slow for the format to be really awesome i I totally agree with that took took many two drops over seven drops in this format i will say yeah, some others, Ovika, Enigma Goliath, that's the blue red 6-6, six, six, Atraxa Grand Unifier even. I mean, that card's insane, but it's got a real cost to your deck, the way you build your deck, the way you interact with the format. And none of those things are what the format incentivizes you to do at the common and uncommon level. Number 36, the Cycle of Dominus were really cool and powerful without being overpowered. Yeah, those were all mythics, right? And they weren't like they were cool and sort of gave you a direction, right? If you had Solfim, the red one, like then you're like, ooh, my Volt Charges deal six or oh, maybe now I want to start to do a Sawblade Scamp thing and these deal two now. But they weren't like just, oh man, Windmill Slam, raw stats, like you would expect a cycle of Mythics to be. Well, and they felt beatable too, playing yes. against them. It felt like your opponent played and it was like, oh man, that card's really good. But you didn't feel like you lost the game when they come down. No, I mean, like red green had a tough time dealing with indestructible. But a lot of times you're like, black's got exile, white's got enchantment based removal, blue has enchantment based removal or tappers like you can deal with these cards. Well, there was usually a window before they could get indestructible also. Correct. And it was a cost to give them indestructible. Right. Yeah. Especially the red one, like discard two cards. That's huge. 
Number 37, Barbed Batter Fist hits the sweet spot of a great raw rate plus synergy in every red deck. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe except for red black, but it, but it does give you two rectangles there if you're caring about something leaving the battlefield or whatever um, for your Charforger. But really good in red white, really good in red blue, either if you care about non-creatures being cast or if you care about artifacts in those red blue decks and just a nice little beater in red green. Perhaps the only, you know, quote unquote, one toughness creature I was happy to play that wasn't Crawling Chorus. It's my second most drafted common behind I have Malkator, baby. You love to see it. Number 38, if you drafted black, you were essentially signing up to draft a toxic and corrupted deck, which was part of the reason it was the weakest color because it was so inflexible. Yeah. Yeah. I like I, I think when we have that in our fifth color rankings, that's perhaps a holdover from it being so overdrafted that it was almost like you just couldn't get into black ever. That's certainly not the case now. And I don't think that'll be the case when you come back to the set, when they bring it for some flashbacks or whatever, but, uh, but it's inflexibility and honestly it's shallowness. Like it probably didn't really support maybe, maybe two drafters, one and a half drafters at the table, you know? Yeah, definitely not as deep as red or something like that. Number 39, white, blue, and green were the colors where the most secret gold cards existed. This was where you really needed to know. Like if you just sort of went in and went, okay, red cards go anywhere. Black cards only want to do toxic. So you don't really have to think about them as being, you know, in different homes. But white, blue, and green cards, you really needed to think about, okay, where is this at its best? Because like, Viral spawning, the green uncommon that was the corrupted payoff made a 3-3 with toxic one and you could flash it back if they were corrupted. Like that was so good in green, black and green, white when you cared about toxic, you know, and so like just a centaur courser in red, Red, green green, and green, blue, you know, like just didn't really do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Very easy to get lost in the sauce or, you know, lost in the woods and have cards that just did not belong in the same deck in the same deck in those colors. Mm -hmm. Number 40, Mir Kinsmith is not Incubation Sack. Honestly, how dare you? Like, (laughs) it's not. It takes up three to four slots in your deck. Incubation Sack takes up one. But, But in a way, that might be a feature. Like, if your draft goes so poorly that you need to play three Mirror Kinsmith. <laughs> and boom, you went from 20 playables to 23 playables like that. Feature not a bug. How, how good is that? I mean, <laughs> I don't think this is true, but I think I think this is more true than you do. <laughs> you definitely think it's more true than I do. <laughs> I've, I've played my fair share of Mirror Kinsmith in the past I, uh, couple weeks. I did it once and it was terrible and never again. Yeah, I, I just have worse drafts than you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. If you're saying that, then I'm going to say this. Number 41, Gulping Scrap Trap is Miria's Outrider. I mean, that is closer to true <laughs> than Mirkin Smith being Incubation Sack. Yeah, that's fair. Gulping Scrap Trap, again, to this day, an underrated, an underappreciated and underrated card. 4-4 is huge. And like, especially in toxic decks, if it's dealing a poison on the way in, a poison on the way out, if you're, it's adding a counter to your Tamiyo's Immobilizer, what, like, I mean... This card's great. Great is a little strong. But it's I, great. I, I, I will give you underrated. I will give you underrated. Fine. Fine. Sounds good. <laughs> Number 42. Scheming Aspirant gave us the term homeless to describe a limited card. Yeah. I, I wonder how many of these kinds of cards will will start to point out. I think like one of the things I learned in Bro was about you really want to identify those 
commons that are build arounds, right? The, the kinds of cards that you can get a few copies of, and then they sort of feel like a game plan for your deck. I think similarly, a card that looks like it can be a game plan or a card that looks very powerful, but doesn't actually belong anywhere. I think identifying those early is going to be a real key as well. Yeah, Scheming Aspirant, definitely a trap card. Number 43, Blade of Shared Souls is a lot better than it looks. So this is the three mana rare artifact. It's the Firmiridon equipment. Whenever the equipment becomes attached to a creature, you can have it become a copy of another creature you control for as long as it's you know attached to that creature. So I, you know, we look at this as like, okay, there's always these like uncommon effects, these three mana blue creatures that can copy only a creature you control. Well, they're not great, right? Because you don't really want to play them on curve because then it's just copying like a two drop. And then sure, you can play it later, but it's not going to always be great. Like sometimes it'll be really good. Get a copy of the, get a second copy of the best creature on the battlefield. But you know, sometimes you don't have anything good on the battlefield. Well, this sort of solves that problem as at, at its base, it's just always a two, two because it makes a, a for token. And then it solves the for on curve problem because then you can just reattach this later. And something I realized last week was how it combos with the, the creatures that die into mites like hive master or crawling chorus is you can, so you have a Hive Master, then you turn something else into Hive Master, it dies into a Mite, then you re-equip to that Mite. Oh, you got another Hive Master, baby. And just then you're just... infinite Hive Masters. How will anyone ever beat that? <laughs> it's impossible to beat. You, you must concede. It is cool, though. I, I have seen that uh, with the Mites with Crawling Chorus in a blue-white deck. Yeah. All right, number 44, knowing where combat tricks belonged and when to include them was really important. So free from flesh, you really wanted in red oil-based decks. Offer immortality as like the indestructible death touch trick. That was pretty darn good in toxic decks where you were incentivized to be pushing damage, chump attacking with creatures into larger creatures. Yes. And then there was Blazing Crescendo, which comboed with nothing. Boom Roasted. Boom Roasted. Totally overplayed, overvalued card, I think. I, that, but that can't be true, right? I feel like every pro loves Blazing Crescendo. So I would say it's more likely that we are missing something about that card. Yeah, but it's our show. So we get to say <laughs> that the card was bad and say Boom Roasted. Boom Roasted. Number 45, creatures that played offense and defense simultaneously were big overperformers. Another like really great, like succinct way to describe something that mattered in the format. Yeah. So cards like Crawling Chorus and Stinging Hivemaster, Basilica Shepherd, Chimney Rabble, Lattice Blade Mantis, just a whole host of cards that were just great on offense and defense. Next up, number 46, rest in peace, Phyrexian Arena. You used to be a good limited Magic the Gathering card. But no longer. No longer. Uh, certainly not in this format. I think it probably would be good in a more reasonably paced format, right? I don't know. It's it's a tough sell to not impact the board on turn three in basically any format. And so then it's a tough sell to be like, well, then how much better is this than like divination on turn seven or something like that? You know, yeah. I, I, I think I think the days are gone where Phyrexian Arena gets the job done. I'm not willing to write it off quite that hard. Unbelievable. Number 47, <laughs> the less synergistic your deck, the better certain cards got. I think the poster child for this concept is Chimney Rabble, but stuff like Silvok Battle Chair, I, I know you weren't maybe a, a full believer in this card, but I know I, I owe Silvok Battle Chair an apology. This is my this is my formal apology. Silvok Battle Chair, totally playable and better than playable lots of the time 
Especially like, if your deck wasn't synergistic. Yeah, the less synergistic your red-green deck was, the less focused on toxic your green-white deck was. Silvlock Battle Chair was just an excellent curve topper. Furnace Punisher, we've already talked about. Bladed Ambassador, right? The less synergistic your deck was, the better this little white two-drop got. But the more synergistic, like the more you did really care about toxic in your white-black or your white-green decks, the more you were as artifact-focused as you should have been in your white-blue decks, you just didn't care about Bladed Ambassador. Right. And I think I was pretty outspoken against Chimney Ravel early in the format or Battle Chair also like fairly early in the format because I could see how good the synergistic decks were. And I think what I was not aware of yet was how good the non-synergistic red-green decks were and just how well a lot of the red and green cards that weren't synergistic played in the format as far as being two-way players on offense and defense. Number 48, cards like Shrapnel Singer and even Gleeful Demolition were honestly pretty main deckable artifact hate. Yeah, largely, I think, thanks to Axiom Engraver as being able to rummage them away. But also, so many decks were running artifacts, they're running the Formiridon equipment, and then you just randomly absolutely hose some blue-white decks. For sure. Can confirm I was on the receiving end of that in the old arena open. Drafted blue-white artifacts, and there were just a lot of cards that got me really good. Number 49, aside from the signposts and a few removal spells... The commons are much better than the uncommons in this format. I, you know, as I was looking through the spoiler again for, uh, you know, inspiration for the 50 takes here, I was just shocked because usually I'm like, oh, I've cast that. I've cast that. Happily play that. I was shocked <laughs> at the amount of uncommons that I was like, terrible, terrible, terrible. Like they're all like narrow or replaceable or just straight unplayable. There's a few like, Real heavy hitters, and then it's a real drop-off from there. Yeah, I think I would buy that. That stands to reason with how I feel about the format. I feel like the commons were really good and let you compete no matter what your opponent is doing. And I think that's why the format appeals to me a lot is because if you draft well, I think you almost always end up with a pretty good deck. Like I'm just like minor misstep, chittering skitterling, font of progress, feed the infection, uh, noxious assault, Plated Onslaught, Vat of Rebirth, like <laughs> Infested Flesh Cutter, Unnatural Restoration. These cards are bad. <laughs> like, again, maybe narrow, but largely bad. Yeah, I think so. Number 50, Phyrexia All Will Be One got a bad reputation early on that was really hard to shake. And I don't know that it ever did with a lot of the population. I don't think so. I think I think it's, again, I, I don't think you have had to like this format at all. That's not my take. And I know a lot of people did not. And that's totally fine. I think the the thing that, I, that makes me a little sad or whatever, it feels like this format didn't really get a fair shot, is that I think it was more misunderstood than anything. I think if people like got it and didn't like it, fine. But I think a lot of people didn't get it and didn't like it as a result of not getting it. Yes, I agree with that. It was almost like there was people had bad experiences early on because they didn't know the rules and then, you know, said things about the format that from my perspective weren't necessarily accurate. And then that kind of became canon for the format in the limited community on like Twitter or Twitch or whatever. It just seemed like it was easy or popular or cool to hate on the format. All I know is I went 3-0 against team resources and got the 2K in the arena open. So this is the greatest format of all time. That's right. Absolutely. Cash the SCG Con Indie format must be outstanding. We're two, just two magic pros from Phyrexia all we won. Absolutely. All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen.
Thanks so much to TCG Player for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to TCG Player for any and all purchases, or read our articles or check out our YouTube videos ahead of schedule, please navigate your way over there using our affiliate link at lordsoflimited.com slash tcgplayer. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash lordtupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash mrmetronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at lordsoflimited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Immune system support or better gut health. Oh my God. He's just talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hey, buddy. Jonah Jonah wants some AG1. Jonah. Oh my God. My healthy guy.